Graphic Policy Radio, and this is the Comics Podcast. This is your host, Ilana Levin, a.k.a. Ilana Brooklyn. And this is the Comics Podcast for people who know that Black Mask is definitely Yang Gang in the primary, but is probably going to go Trump in the general, even if he doesn't want to admit it in public. That's right. We're talking about the Birds of Prey, a.k.a. Birds of Prey and the fantabulous emancipation of one Harley Quinn, which has since been renamed to just be Harley Quinn colon Birds of Prey. I mean, I loved that original name title, but you're right. It was kind of hard for search engine optimization and and and, and keeping on the tip of people's tongues. Um, but I'm really excited to be talking about this movie. I'm being joined by three fantabulous guests. Uh, first time guest is Nadia Shemes. Nadia is an Arab American comic writer and native Brooklynite. She's best known for being the creator of Corpus, a comics anthology of bodily ailments and the co-creator of Squire, a YA Middle Eastern fantasy set from the HarperCollins next year. You can find her and her movie takes on Twitter at Nadia underscore S-H-A-M-M-A-S underscore. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much. I'm so excited to be on. Yay. And joining me are... Two classic guests, Veronique Emma Hubois is a fiercely career critic, cartoonist, and consultant, most recently spotted in the Pacific Northwest, writing her Trans Mascara column for Comicosity and hosting Read from the Rafters on YouTube as her drag persona, Judith Slays. Named one of sci-fi's most influential women in genre 2017, her credits include Love is Love for IDW slash DC, Critical Chips Volume 2 for Shortbox, and Called into Being 200 Years of Frankenstein. Welcome back, Emma. Hi, great to be here. Um, and actually, that award was given to me by our next guest. <laughs> yeah, what? I wasn't sure if it was fair to say, but yeah. <laughs> our next guest is Sarah Century. Sarah is a writer of short stories, articles, and of comics and film, and many, many zines. She is an artist, comic creator, and filmmaker, as well as co-host of the weekly podcast, Bitches on Comics, which I really enjoy. Welcome back, Sarah. Yeah, I'm so happy to be here. So before we get into the spoiler section, I do want to give people a sense of what we I think about the movie overall, since I know not everybody is committed to seeing it. And I will tell you, I enjoyed this movie tremendously. My capsule review, spoiler-free, would be that it is a gleefully violent and funny action movie with John Wick-level fight choreography, all about women waging cathartic violence against abusive men. With a great soundtrack and costumes, the whole theater was laughing and cheering for a diverse cast, including queer women playing uh, like characters, not subtextually queer, but like textually queer women, who are all there kicking ass, being hot, and supporting each other. To my fellow fans of the Birds of Prey comics, many of the Birds of Prey are quite different from their portrayals in the comics, but their relationships with each other are so true to the spirit of the series that the change in the movie really didn't bother me at all. You know, the theme of the comic is alive and well in this movie. And so even as like a Gail Simone purist, as it were, I totally am endorsing this Birds of Prey movie. does anybody else want to chime in on the spoiler-free uh, endorsement section? I mean, I guess I'll just say that visually, this movie is absolutely stunning. Like, the styling, every single time that the camera was on any of these women, I was like, they look so incredible. The set pieces were incredible. Everything about it, like, was just so fun. And the world felt really, really realized. I don't know. I just think, vis- like... The action's amazing, mm-hmm. but visually every frame is 
gorgeous and fun. And and I think that it's really nice when you see a movie and you're like, I can tell that the people working on this had a good time. <laughs> I also think like anybody who's denying themselves the opportunity to see this because they're a purist about the comics is just giving them, it's not letting themselves have a good time. You know yeah. what I mean? Yes. Okay. So we're all telling you to go see the movie. And so you're yep. going to go see the movie and then you're going to come back and listen to this. Cause from here on there be spoilers. Um, you know, one of the things that, you know, coming to this myself, like I'm a big fan of the Birds of Frey comics. I do not consider myself a Harley Quinn expert. Like I know more than the next person because I, I read comics, but like she's not a character that I've focused my interest or fandom on. Um, and so, you know, to me, it was sort of like Harley Quinn is in this because this is the way that this Birds of Prey movie gets to be made. And like, God bless Marco Robbie for being like, this is how I want to use my Hollywood clout and like getting a woman director, you know, on this and like really producing it and making it happen. Um, the director is like someone whose own work, uh, Kathy Yan has like done indie stuff and stuff like that. You know, the script is by Christina Hodson. Like, there are just, like, women from the rafters, like, making this movie happen. Yeah. Um, it was so good. Do do folks, like, are there things that you loved about the movie and did not expect to see? Yes. So my thing that I loved about the movie and didn't expect to see was that all of the fight scenes are character specific and I love it when that happens. I love when characters fight differently and having drunk shit show Harley Quinn alongside, you know, really cool, swift, efficient black canary. All of that really worked for me. Mm. That's a good way to describe her fighting skill. Yes. And yeah. like, I liked how they connected her back to her mom. Like I wasn't going to assume that that would happen like with, you know, Black Canary senior as it were, but I love that they kept that in the story. I know. So did I, I'm a sucker for that stuff. And she has sad mom feelings in it. And I've, you know, emotions had a great time. I think that, um, speaking like Harley Quinn's fighting style, actually, I didn't really think about that when I was watching it, but like, the like it was so acrobatic and it was like just like mm -hmm. flips and everything like incredibly I don't know I don't want to say clown-like but you know what I mean like circus performer-esque yeah. and I was like this is mm -hmm. this is very that it, it was it was just fun to watch yeah my big insight I think on this is like this isn't just a, this isn't like a DC movie this is a Warner Brothers movie in the sense that Harley acts as a Warner Brothers cartoon she is Bugs Bunny in mm -hmm. this. She has this physical mastery of all the space around her. She's got like the she's got like the Roadrunner thing where like everybody's trying to get her and they just trip over the rake every single time and they get smacked in the face. And she has her own gravity. And like she doesn't have a literal superpower in this, you know, the way like Aquaman or the Flash does, but her superpower is basically having the physics of a Warner Brother cartoon surrounding her body at all times. And I love that. I don't know if they deliberately were like, hey, this is Warner Brothers. Let's get like Warner Brothers about it. But for me, that was 
such a smart take. I mean, it even started, right? Like, it started animated with, like, kind of her telling her story. Mm -hmm. And it's, like, this kind of animated version of her going through her backstory really fast. And, um... I mean, I'm going to disclose here that I'm actually not a, a comic reader, but I really never really read any Birds of Prey comics. I'm not so familiar with, I'm familiar with the characters individually just by like comics osmosis, but not from like reading mm-hmm. the comics themselves. So I kind of had like a little bit of expectation going in, but not too much. So I'm not particularly married to the way that these certain characters should be represented. But I will say that... Um, Personally, I think that the best comic movies are the ones that aren't afraid to be like this was a comic. And I think that the kind of over the topness Mm -hmm. and like the high energy voltage stuff did remind me that it's like, yes, this is this is fun. This is a comic. And I know that not all comics have to be fun, but I think like when I think about my favorite comic movies like Spider-Verse or like Scott Pilgrim, I think about like the energy, like that comic energy. And I think Mm -hmm. this movie really had that. And that's what and I really enjoyed that. Emma, I think of you as being someone who may have some particularly informed thoughts on one Harley Quinn. Like, how do you feel the movie handled the character or translated her or developed her in a, in a new or different way? Um, I think it was it was kind of deeply middle of the road, I guess I would say. Um, one thing I was thinking a lot about, the, the setup of the movie and kind of where we find her, is that a lot of superheroes have have like a Groundhog Day thing that they constantly deal with that they constantly go through um and i've been spending a few months working on um a piece about warren ellis uh warren ellis's uh, iron man comic uh extremis and it kind of talks about I, I go into a lot about how he's gone through all these different conflicts different wars where his um origin gets rehashed right um and it kind of gets updated and you get a sense of you know, where America is and it's, it's war machine and all of these, these kinds of um, ideas. And so Harley Quinn kind of has, she's, she's, she, her groundhog moment day is when she breaks up with the Joker because it, it happens mm-hmm. again and again and again. And when we see it many times, so kind of, if you've been like, I guess I've literally been watching Harley since she first debuted in the cartoon, in like 1992 or whatever that was. But it, the the kind of tough thing with Harley is if you you've been watching her and reading her for a long time, then this is uh, this is a well worn thing. She's going to break up with the Joker, and you get the conversation with her roller derby skull where they're like, "Oh no, she's just going to go back to him." Um, and that and that's a commentary on like the fact that that has been the plot arc up until 2013, from 2013 until now, and obviously that's they're not ever going to get back together again, at least not in I, I don't think the next few years. But it is kind of a cycle that she goes through, and a cycle that we've seen before. So I think for for longtime readers, there's a lot of pressure to be like, well, where are we going to take this Groundhog Day moment for her? Um, and what are we going to do with it? Um, and, and I think, and this is a really strange way to put this, but the, the tragic irony of the situation is that the movie loses something by not having access to a Joker. I don't know if we want to say Jared Leto's Joker specifically, um, or if they just kind of had to stand in. But so we just kind of take it on faith that there was a breakup and off she goes. Um, and, and so that's kind of, 
you know, like like I said, it, it's a scenario that we've seen before again and again. Like if, if you've been following Harley for a long time, if you haven't, then it kind of feels like at least somewhat new territory. But um, I wouldn't really weigh it. Yay, they did it amazingly because I think you would have needed to have some depiction of the Joker to really dig into that and and to really kind of be more explicit um, and, and more direct about the abusive dynamics of that relationship, you know, relative to, say, how Connor and Palmiotti have played it or other, you know, more recent writers have played it. But I don't think there's any knocks against it. So that, to me, is kind of like it comes out neutral. That's interesting because to me, like I literally was saying, I love the Joker's absence in this and that the only time you see him is in the animated flashback. I love how much she's like a non-concern, but you raise an interesting point, which is like a lot of her behavior is only explicable if you truly understand how fucked up her relationship was. On the other hand, like is the Joker's toxicity so different from that many men in the real world? Like, maybe not. Maybe we don't actually need to see it. I don't know. I'm kind of curious where other folks come down on that question. Should the Joker have been on camera or not? I mean, Sarah, I'm this feels a, I like was, a new thing. <laughs> I was very happy for him to be gone, but I also understand exactly what you're saying because, of course, there was so, so much, you know, you it's basically going from the animated series to you know today or something it's like there's this whole middle period of growth that we just absolutely cut out and I think that that obviously is not true to how (laughs) abusive relationships that are long-term tend to end I guess that it seems to Mm. be a much longer process so I think I understand what you're saying with that uh for my enjoyment I was happy (laughs) not to have that guy Mm. present um, but you know, I, it, to me, it's like, uh, we'll, we'll probably get back into their dynamics sometime soon. But then of course it's also, you know, I read tons of the comics, so, you know, I wouldn't know what it's like to watch it from the outside and be like, so what, <laughs> you know, there's just a whole middle of this story that's completely missing. I wonder what happens. But mm. I, I, I think, um, the, the big thing you, that, that we miss out on, um, is if you go back to Suicide Squad, um, which I think kind of unfortunately, again, you have you kind of have to do thinking about it because this is a sequel to that movie right. and the marketing and the dynamics. Um, and there was a, a lot of, I think, justified, um, you know, misgivings or, or opposition to the merchandise and all of this and, and playing up the Joker and Harley as being this like Bonnie and Clyde cool thing that you, you know, you buy the daddy's little monster t-shirt and this kind of stuff at, Mm. at hot topic. Um, and you know, there's a lot of questions about like marketing that dynamic to teens in particular. Right. Because I, I think, and then my whole thing is like, if you're a Joker Harley shipper and like you're an adult with, with a sensible understanding of BDSM dynamics and whatnot, then sure, you can have lots of fun with that. I mean, I'm not in that crowd personally, but I, I think that there, there's a card out to be made there. But when you're spending millions of, on marketing and kind of how muddled those dynamics were in Suicide Squad because of the weird editing issues that right, film had, yeah. 
you never really got a strong sense. Like, did he push her out of the helicopter or did he not? I mean, it it, it was so ambivalent because it kind of seemed to me like the studio wanted to back off from, from where David Ayer was going. And I guess only Ayer knows that. But mm. it, to me, it's kind of that gap between how muddled the approach was in Suicide Squad the way that the marketing played it up as them being like a cutesy emo valentine, which is not really accurate to anything, um, and then to where we see it in the film. So it, it, it's, you know, and, and it's, again, it's tragic that this film had to deal with so much of the baggage of the production difficulties and just the choices that were made in Suicide Squad. But that's kind of why I would position it that way and say I would have liked to see more of that, particularly because of, the gaps around that issue in this franchise pre-Birds of Prey. Right. To be clear, though, I didn't see Suicide Squad. And I I mean, I'm familiar with all the characters, obviously, extremely well, but I, I didn't see the Suicide Squad movie, and I don't think it impacts people's enjoyment. You, what, what were you going to say, Nadia? Um, I was going to say that I think that the movie had a really hard thing trying to kind of like right like trying to deal with the fact that there was no way they could actually put joker in this movie like in a physical presence um Mm. because it was so tied to suicide squad it was kind of like leto or nothing and they kind of were like and i honestly am very thankful that he wasn't in it um but i think that for me the movie tried to kind of shape that into a point like i still i you know when during this discussion i can't help but think about that scene where um, Cassie Kane goes to Harley's apartment and sees the picture of Joker and is like, who's that? And Harley <laughs> goes on like, oh, he's the clown prince of genocide or whatever. And like a bunch of like titles, like you don't know who it is. And she's like, no, seems like a dick. And I was like, yep, I feel like this movie is, I'm not saying that it's earned, but I feel like this movie attempted to take this kind of absence and make it almost a point, make it to be like, you don't need the Joker to tell a Harley story. I mean, that's why she says that thing at the end where she was like, people shouldn't be afraid of Joker or you people should be afraid of me. Um, mm-hmm. Again, I, I, I understand that that wasn't like completely earned and probably we're filling in the gaps some as comic fans, but that like, I think I think the movie attempted to to make it purposeful and to varying degrees of success. I actually really like the scene where Cassie was like, I don't know who that is. Because honestly, yeah, that, that was amazing. Yeah. And I think that it almost speaks to this movie attempting to be for new fans rather than like old ones. Do you know what I mean? Like, like kind of it's like this movie is like attempting to move forward being like, this is we're 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 looking for different people. We're looking for people who might not necessarily feel so intense about the Joker, you know? And be like, yeah. So, I mean, yeah. I, I, I don't. I mm-hmm. lost the thread. I lost the thread. No, at the that end. was a great thread. That was a great thread. <laughs> I, I want to talk about the Cassandra Kane character. Actually, I um, adore the character and the performance. Um, it's so hard for like, it's so easy for like, rascally scamp kid characters to be just obnoxious and worthy of eye rolling. And she was such a delight. Um, this character bears literally no resemblance whatsoever to Cassandra Kane in the comics. And guess what? I don't fucking care. 
Uh, I admit that I'm not somebody who sat there like uh, riveted by all the Cassandra Cain Batgirl comics or anything, but like it would be so easy for a movie to just end up making a silent, orientalized, like Asian American character if they kept the character being like she was in the comics. Like, I don't think the comics did that in the end of the day, but that would be so easy for the movie to fall into if they're just part of one story. Um, I mean, you could, I, I could argue that maybe they should have renamed the character like Misfit or even Stephanie Brown, because I think that the origins, uh, you know, Misfit from Birds of Prey or Stephanie Brown, um, you know, like from the Batman's books, because like a lot of Cassandra's personality, a lot of movie Cassandra's personality uh, in terms of, her spunkiness and her reverence and her need to protect herself from adults who are exploiting her, um, but her also feeling like very modern and contemporary um, and like a person, like a young person you would actually meet in New, in New York. Um, it felt like more like those other characters, more like, more like that character. Um, and and so, you know, I don't know. On, on balance, I would have maybe had her be named something else but I'm totally cool with like the way that they chose to do this instead of uh, the, the comics characterization where she is uh, a girl raised by an, an Asian assassin who never was taught how to speak so that she could be a fearless ninja. Like it's just, it's just full of problematicness. That comic is very great <laughs> and they go in a different direction and I uh, love it, but also Cassie Kane can be two things. There's tons of superheroes that are more than one version of themselves, I guess. Um, that happens all of the time and sometimes for the better and sometimes for the worse. But I mean, whenever, I mean, I can see being disappointed because you like saw Cassie Kane as one of the characters and you thought that you were going to get the comics version of that. But, you know, the comics version even isn't consistent. <laughs> like after the Batgirl series ended, you know, all of this other stuff happened. A lot of these characters aren't very consistent, like in the comics. So mm -hmm. it's kind of whenever people are like, oh, that's not like it was in the comics. And it's like, maybe it's not like it was in the good comics or the comics that you like, but it is how it is in the comics because nobody has a, like a Bible that they follow on these characters. <laughs> like, I mean, it would maybe be cool if they did, but I mean, you know, like Roy Thomas in the Marvel universe wasn't always the best thing. And that like that uh, eye for continuity wasn't always the best thing. So that's kind of, that's where I fall on it. Like I love Cassandra Kane in the comics. This was a great character too. She was kind of necessary for the story, you know, mm -hmm. if they were going to do Harley Quinn, uh, starring in Charlie Chaplin's The Kid, you know, then they needed a kid for sure. So, uh, yeah, I don't know. I was fine with it. I thought she was a really fun character. I, you know, I, I think, I mean, personally, the, the the Cassandra Cain character was probably the only one that really worked for me in the movie. Um, but, you know, I, I kind of, I really agree with Ilana's point where it was like, I don't know why this character is named Cassandra Kane. Um, and yeah. I mean, when, yeah, like I didn't actually think of Misfit. I was definitely thinking more of, um, I think, what is her name? Bluebird? Uh, Harper Road uh, Bluebird, yeah. Harper Road, who's, yeah. Who's a bird, yeah. Or, or any of these other characters. The character herself is great and the, and, and the role that, that she plays is good. Um, I mean, I kind of would really wish that they had really played up and explained. I mean, I may really explain the joke, but 
really put it to us that the whole point of this character is that she's Harley's Robin at the end, right? That oh, right. Harley adopts mm-hmm. and Robin the same way that Batman does. And it just, they kind of leave it in the air um, without really addressing it. But I would have, yeah, I mean, I, the character worked for me, but I, I think the problem is it would have been easier to split the difference and say this was Harper Rowe, or if they made her a few years older, then it could have been Elysia Yo, and that would have been something really interesting. Yeah. Um, but they also shot themselves in the foot in terms of the way that you can't do Cassandra Kane as, as that Batgirl anymore. Um, and there are a lot of deep, deep issues with her original mm-hmm. um, appearances, um, and, and, and I really don't like that origin for a lot of reasons. But yeah. um, Batman and Robin Eternal took another swing at it, um, which, which I think is kind of what Sarah was alluding to. And that version, they did get to the point where she didn't really talk and she was traumatized, but... Genevieve Valentine in particular had an issue where they really got to the way that she reads body movement early on with this incredible sequence at a ballet. And so you you can take the, those broken pieces um, and, and build them into something that, that's a lot more, um, you know, positive or, or make some kind of sense outside of, ooh, she's a spooky ninja. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think it's too bad that that road got closed off because they kind of flipped through the archives like, okay, what do we name this kid? Ah, Cassandra Kane. But, you know, I, I, I thought her, her presence in her character as, you know, that kind of plucky foster kid was fun, even if it was a little bit of a retread of Shazam in some ways. Mm-hmm. Oh, no, I don't feel that. I mean... One of the things that for me really worked is like I, I'm usually super critical of any stories that assume that a woman who's like a grown woman is going to want to take care of a young woman and like take on some caregiver role. Like I resent the fuck out of that. But I really enjoyed Harley's relationship with Cassandra. And I, I think I think, Emma, you nailed it, which is that. It's her Robin. Because I was like, why is it that this relationship where this older woman is, not older, but, you know, grown up, grown up woman has to take care of this, this, this uh, tween age girl isn't, 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 isn't bothering me the way it normally does. And like, you nailed it, Emma, it's because it's Batman and Robin, but like for chaotic neutral. Um, And I like that. (laughs) I mean, I think that that you could make an argument of that being, like, part of a problem of, like, the infantilization of Harley Quinn in, like, a really weird way. But but I think that, um, ultimately, the thing that makes Cassandra Cain really, at least in this, like, the Cassandra Cain of this movie really compelling for me is that, like, yeah, she's, like, a street urchin. She's, like, a hard hard kid. Um, um, but, like, she also wants connection, like she mm-hmm. was completely open to 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 kind of to being taken under Harley's wing, and I I think that that's what made it organic. If it, it being this instead of this character, that's like no, I don't need anybody. This kid was like, oh, absolutely, I'll rob a grocery store with you. Like you know what I mean. So <laughs> I think that that's I think that that's what made it work. Um, is just that the, the kid wanted to be there (laughs) and and like both of them wanted to be there you know that's cool that's cool um you know i i uh one of the characters that um you know i that i've seen some interesting people uh, weighing in on is huntress um Mm. i i have had a number of folks who are autistic say that the character of huntress in this read they connected to the character as autistic as feeling like 
their own manifestation of autism as well, which is interesting. Um, I obviously can't weigh in on that one way or another, but um, I, with the Huntress, it was sort of like, at first I felt like, because, you know, the, the panels from the Birds of Prey comics that I've been sharing most recently to get hyped for the movie involved like Helena like making some jokes. And then I was realizing that those are all stuff from later in her career. Like this is early in her career, Helena. And the Helena that I think of, I can totally see her beginning like the one in this movie. Like th- this being like her origin story phase where she's still practicing. I love the bit of her like practicing saying her name in the mirror, which I mean, that's an amazing thing. And one of the things that I think folks were connecting with from the autism side of it. Um, it, it I, that that feels to me like, yeah, this is a little baby huntress before she ever meets the birds of prey in the comics. Um, and I love how literally everybody in the cast is just awestruck with how hot she is. Like, I think yeah. that the real ship coming out of all of this is like huntress slash everyone, every individual other lady <laughs> and the birds of prey. Yeah, um, anyone who has knows me or seen my Twitter has known that I've absolutely lost my mind over this out of this version of Huntress. Um, I, she was my favorite character, not just because she was agonizingly hot, um, but also just because I think that she was hilarious in a way that I didn't expect. Just kind of like this insanely capable yet painfully awkward assassin who's like mm-hmm. never had other girlfriends before. Uh, was just fantastic. Um, I thought the practicing the mirror bit was wonderful. I thought the thing about her hating it being called a crossbow was wonderful. I'm not 12. Amazing. Um, I just, she was genuinely the breakout for me. And I think a lot of people, again, not just because like we all want her to step on us, but also just because um, I think she's just, I don't know. um, I don't want to say the word relatable, but like, yeah, I think that anybody who's kind of socially uncomfortable or or kind of like doesn't you know hasn't made a lot of like relationships you know maybe was like a little bit you know kind of isolated as a kid and like ended up making most of their relationships as adults will really recognize like oh yeah this this I get this you know what I mean so I, I really liked it and I like that all the other characters as you said um kind of all just supported her and were like you're so cool and she's like yeah am I like no you're amazing you know so <laughs> the, that was that was also nice to see that support and camaraderie amongst like a group of group of ladies I loved Huntress. I also always have loved Huntress. I think that the first time I was reading Huntress stories were in the mid-90s, probably. And she was uh, getting into fights with Batman because she used lethal force on the Mm -hmm. Justice League. So she got kicked out of the Justice League. And I was like, she's so rad. So (laughs) even now, I think that she is extremely rad. And I think that that's a good way of looking at the character is like, maybe this is her early days whenever she's first going in because she did just kill all the people so it's like the beginning for her like she'll be fighting with batman and using lethal force on people that she shouldn't sometime very soon i'm sure (laughs) i enjoy that greatly I, i you know i i think like so much of the pleasure of this movie is just watching these really different women co and support each other and like just give each other a chance and validate each other like so much even though they begin all having fist fights like it doesn't assume that all women instantly all get along it doesn't presume that all women all will 
get along. And Harley like sticks, you know, actually screws a couple people over in the end there. So I think it like, it did some very complicated dance of like scratching the itch to like show this camaraderie without acting like it's like all, all roses, you know? Yeah, no, I think that it was, it, it did a great job of not being, not feeling catty in a way that some people might come to expect. Like, you know, people have never been around women before expect that women <laughs> are in a group. Um, but I think that, uh, I think that I like the part that got me, the part that got me in this movie that made me go like, this was written by like, this is amazing was the one part. This is female companionship at its height is mm-hmm. um, when um, they're fighting and Harley offers Dinah a hairband in the middle of the fight. Yeah. And oh, I was right. like, yeah. this is the moment. This is the thing for me. This is the best thing that's happened in this whole film. <laughs> Yeah, it's so funny how much that took me out, too, where I was just like, I've never seen that in a movie before. Yeah, (laughs) exactly. I was like, I've never seen that in a movie, but it's so real. This is like the most, this is the most like genuinely kind thing. Like, this is such a moment of kindness and perfection. I love it. So yeah, that's, that was, that was my moment where I was like, God, they, like, they nailed it. This movie nailed it. And I know it's so small, but that was that genuinely was the moment for me. I held the per- I held my friend who I was who was sitting next to. I mean, I held her Aww. every time Huntress was on screen, but I also <laughs> held her at that moment. Yeah, yeah, that's a great discussion question. Actually, like, what are some other moments that you guys felt was like, oh, this movie was definitely made by women? I just a lot of I guess the the small interactions that were not. Oh, God. You know, it's like every time we see a movie, almost like, you know, I mean, it changes a little bit, but we're still looking at a genre that is so, so predominantly defined by men, I guess, that Mm -hmm. even when you have, they're like, I'm going to write this woman, she's going to be a badass character, then it's like, then we have to deal with like badass character for the entire movie instead of, you know, real character, character that has believable dialogue, you know, all of that kind of stuff. And I I do think that that was all over this movie. Like there were just a lot of scenes that you could tell uh, they just like aren't really there, I guess, for other like it's not really there for that, I guess, is how it felt to me. You you see a lot of women eating food and talking about food and regarding food as a source of pleasure. And like, right. Yeah. I always have a little bit of an itch around that when it's like and all of these women are super thin Although Cassandra is like a normal girl, which is nice. But like, even so, I mean, it was still like, this is definitely women seeking, like, who like appreciate food and are talking about food. Um, And it had a sort of weird food sensuality in that. And like, obviously everybody went and got an egg sandwich as soon as the movie was done. At least I know (laughs) I did. Did did anybody else get an egg sandwich immediately after the movie? um they I ate tater tots because I was at the dine-in theater so oh, well, I uh, didn't eat anything else I'm yeah. vegetarian too so I was like can I have um tater tots <laughs> I went to the Alamo draft house so I had food with there but I um egg egg bodega egg sandwiches are a very large part of my diet so <laughs> like I was like I mean it was well described the dash of hot sauce even though I will take issue with the bodega guy being named Sal, I've never met a bodega guy named Sal. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like that is not an accurate. <laughs> I 
No, it's Gotham, but it's not accurate. And I was mad about it. Yes. Yes. And she said he was Armenian and I'm like, that's legit. But I don't think that, I don't know. That's not the name I would have. Yeah. That's not the name I would have gone for. I was, I was a little bit, I I can't believe, again, I think this is the first negative thing I've said about this movie. It was just like, (laughs) it took me out of it. I was like, there's no way this, maybe Sam, maybe George, like, like, but like, not Sal. What the hell? What is that uh, short for? I that's mean, Salvatore. It, it, it is that's Harley Salvatore. Quinn talking. I, I don't think there's any indication that that's what this guy's name really is. <laughs> oh, I, uh, good point. I mean, oh, that's true. You know, but I mean, that moment, um, it kind of just sort of came and went for me. But it, but it is, it was one of those small moments that that kind of brought back. Um, the kind of stuff that the, the Jimmy Palmiotti and Connor did and, and sort of the right. point that in those comics, it is like it, it's New York. She's in Brooklyn, right? Mm-hmm. It's, it's mm-hmm. not Gotham City. And it was weird because I was, it, it, it felt to me so like totally c- correct to the, the Palmiotti Connor run. But it also just sort of really um, emphasized to me just how underbaked this version of Gotham is. Mm. relative to like Tim Burton or Joel Schumacher and sure. I mean this goes back to because they're they're using basically the same idea and image of Gotham that um Batman versus Superman used and Suicide Squad used and hmm. I was just like where's like the huge architectural pieces where's the sense that this is Gotham City it's just I don't know I was like you- this is neat but it's 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 not the Palmiani Connor Brooklyn it's supposed See- to be Gotham I think you, to me, like, it all felt like it was in Chinatown and environs. Like, she lives in Chinatown. The market they were running through was in Chinatown. You know, Chinatown, like, you can go all the way from there to pe- to the piers on the East River. Like, it all just sort of felt like a very specific slice of lower Manhattan. And, like, even the fancy shit, like, that could be Tribeca. You know what I mean? Um But it was interesting. Like, I was watching the movie and questioning, like, is this supposed to be, like, Gotham as New York? Or, like, like, where do they want me to be situating it, you know? Um, But it felt like Chinatown to me. As someone who has spent a good amount of time running around there, I was like, yeah, no, this is Chinatown. This feels right. Yeah, no, Um, somebody literally lived my entire life here. Yeah, no, I I actually completely agree with that point, Emma. I was like, this is is just New York. Like, like where, you know, I, I think that that's very, very true. It's just New York. And I think that that can be a little bit distracting. And I, but I was, I wasn't sure if the movie was just honestly leading into it at that point, you know, mm-hmm. just like a nudge, nudge, wink, wink, like, yeah, I got them. Well, mm-hmm. speaking of New York, uh, Nadia, let's talk about Harley Quinn's accent because I, you know, I had heard that like the only good thing in the Suicide Squad movie was Marco Robbie's uh, performance. And I was very willing to go along with that. Um, and I could certainly tell her physical performance was great. Uh, but I, when I heard her speak in mm-hmm. the advertisements for the movie, I was a little bit like, this This accent doesn't quite seem right. And it's a little bit, I don't know if I can listen to a whole movie of this. Yeah, I'm going- And then once I got in there, I was like, oh no, this is completely fine. Yeah, I, I think I mentioned it to you earlier where I was like, I was a little bit nervous, especially when it opened on narration that I was like, oh no, because I'm going to be very honest here and say I really can barely stand Marcos Robbie's Harley voice um, just because the accent, not because I have a, I mean, like my my dad has a heavy Brooklyn accent. It's not even, it's not that the accent gets me. It's the, it's wrong. Like there's something right. off about the accent and it's, it's, and I can't figure out where 
it is, but it doesn't, it just doesn't sound like any, it's not like an Italian Brooklyn accent. It's not like a South Brooklyn accent. It's not like, it's not even like a Jersey accent. Like, I don't know where it's, it's just, it's just incorrect and mm-hmm. it grates me and I don't want it to. And I, and I, obviously at some point in the movie, I just kind of like let it, like I let it go. But then like, mm-hmm. sometimes it would pop up like when she was like, yes, I'm just a terrible person. And I was like, what is that? <laughs> but, um, but you know, so like, I, I think the, the voice, I, you know, it, it was consistent, but it was consistently incorrect. Um, however, it still did not, it, the movie was so good that it, to me, at least that it, uh, it didn't dampen my enjoyment of it. At some point I just kind of gave in to this like bizarro yeah. land version of New York Gotham that when, which Harley is the only one with a bad accent. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, I think that that kind of goes back to Arlene Sorkin, right, who is the, the original voice actress of Harley, really kind of played that stuff up. And I mean, I would assume that Margot Robbie is trying to match what, what, what Sorkin did. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's always kind of like, what is it? Because uh, Palmiotti and Connor, they, they do sometimes do like a really affected, um, uh, what do you call it? phonetic? Yeah. You know, version of of this bizarre cartoonish Canarsie accent. But if any, and if you go back to Paula Dini, um, you know, he's throwing Yiddish in there too. So there's always been a real kind of like a, a shit mix of what it is that Harley's voice oh, and background are supposed to be. Absolutely. Right? I mean, I think that the thing that gets me about the Margot Robbie's voice is that. I, you know, I started, like, my introduction to Harley was Batman the Animated Series, even though it's mm-hmm. obviously much later than it came out, because when it came out, I wasn't even born yet. But, you know, like, I watched Aww. it as a kid, um, mm-hmm. and I loved her voice. Like, I Harley was, like, a bit, like, I loved Harley in the Animated Series, and I could listen to her talk for hours. So I don't know what it is about Margot Robbie's Harley voice that gets me in comparison to animated series harley's voice which i can't get enough of i love so i don't i don't know what it is it's just something's off for me hmm. well i i definitely want to talk at least a little bit about the costumes and outfits and clothing which were outrageously good um it was fascinating to see so many straight men misunderstand them on the internet in advance and to then laugh at them for them being dumb and wrong um there's like a number of black mask suits that people should probably buy me yes. um get on that <laughs> but um but yeah like emma i also wanted to get your thoughts about the fashion aspects of this um oh goodness um well you know i i guess congratulations to harley doing a smash and grab at a uh, nordstrom's but i mean that it, it honestly alienated me hugely um i i mean i, I get it it's a, it, like it's an aesthetic and there there's yeah. a design streak that runs through all of her outfits but i'm just kind of like it felt to me like somebody just sent a shopper out to to nordstrom and was like okay bull primaries and like shiny stuff and off we go i mean the like the outfits top to bottom they, they all fit together very nicely but but that whole aesthetic running through it and i guess part of it is because we're still again kind of dealing with the the the, the leavings of the Snyderverse um and kind of where that left them for aesthetic grounds but i was kind of like this it to me it it just didn't fit it just didn't work as harley for me um, because a key key part 
of of why I love the the Connor Palmiotti stuff so much so much is is when they move her to Brooklyn, they move her out to Coney Island, and they really brought because especially Jimmy Palmiotti because he tells these stories and he, and he's very colorful um, about New York life, just even on Twitter um, and elsewhere. But you know they they, they dig into the burlesque scene, they dig into the roller derby scene and kind of like the carny stuff and, and just sort of like what those lifestyles are and what those costumes are. Um, and, and they're, because, you know, it is a great part in the movie where it's like, when does she have time to do a costume change? She should be doing a million costume changes, a movie. But to me, it all kind of felt like it was, you know, a lot of high-end designer stuff that was tailored to make that look, as opposed to things that really, from the ground up, evoked the um, the kind of, like, where Harley comes from and sort of what her organic fan base has been. Because the fun thing, when she broke out of the old, like, Harley, like the classic cartoon costume, they started going through these changes from Palmiotti and Connor on, I mean, not the, the stupid video game and not the, the, <laughs> the new yeah. 52 Suicide Squad looks, not those spirit Halloween, you know, disaster capitalism, you know, sort of Halloween costume looks. But the, the later stuff was that they're like, okay, who is the fan base? Who has loved Harley this entire time? You know, it is roller derby girls. It is burlesque performers in this. And they, they integrated those stylistic um, elements into the costumes, and I just didn't see that here. I mean, I saw a look um, that fit together, but to me, it just, it didn't, it was more subtractive than additive to the character to me. Oh, so I was just watching a video with them where uh, they were talking about cosplaying, right? And how they always get their ideas from cosplayers and stuff. So it was exactly what you were saying. Hmm. About connecting it back to what the fans were like looking yeah, for. Yeah, like the people who like they see at conventions and the people who they see around building Harley's look for them. Which yeah, I can definitely see how that's different from what you see in the movie for sure. I get I really loved her like really embroidered sequin outfit from the last scene in particular that made me very happy. Yeah, I'm I, I was honestly crazy about all of the costuming. I thought that it was I just loved it. I just thought everything that was worn felt like a character. And yeah, and, and I felt like it was kind of toned up and toned down at the same time. And in the sense of like, I felt like this was a hyper aesthetic universe in which everyone looked like so perfectly put together in their own sense of fashion. Um, mm. I'm going to talk about Huntress again. Loved her tracksuits. That would die for that. Um but, like, uh, I think that for for me, it was sort of casual Harley, but amped up. I mean, even Black Mask, like, all those velvet suits, you know, absolutely gorgeous. I was just a I, – I was really, mm-hmm. like, gaga all over the costumes. But I think that it is really interesting because, again, I am coming from a place in which I don't have the connective tissue from the comics because the – you know, I those just didn't happen to be the comics I read, and I kind of – read a lot of like comics adjacent to that like I read a lot of Batman I watched the animated series and and, you know but I didn't read so you know I read a lot of I read like Gil Simone's Batgirl run so like that that kind of stuff where it's like it was like sort of touching but not touching so I do think it's really interesting to hear from you Emma who has like such a like a grounded foundation in in the comics world like and how different our experiences were 
well, let's talk about Black Mask and Victor Zaz just a bit. Um, I had a, I think like I had heard before the movie came out that um, they, like that, I, I I don't know like what people were saying, if they were supposed to say that the, oh, the characters are supposed to be played as, as being gay or not. Um, and I still don't know I, I if that's what people are trying to say or not. But, uh, you know, I'm very cautious around having gay villains because that's, like a complicated trope to lean into all the damn time. But in this, we had a story where we have Renee Montoya, who is like portrayed as a lesbian who has lesbian relationships. And Harley, who in her little pre-episode, her early in the movie animated sequence, it does show one of the people who she's matched up with in the little um, bingo thing to be a woman. Like, I was like, well, you know, if they want to do that with them, then that's okay. Because it's not like the only characters are going to be like, queer villainy um but one of the things that i think made it work okay also though is that the the black masks villainy is not connected to any of his flamboyance at all actually um and because those 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 things are separated i was like pleasantly surprised and reassured that this was actually not a portrayal that was going to make me uncomfortable. Um, I mean, in the end, I think that we had a super unhinged misogynist piece of shit and getting him blown up was just delightful. I mean, all of the fucking men in this movie had it coming to them. Even the ones where you don't know how bad they had come, they had, they had it coming to them until later. Like the guy whose face was, had the, uh, clown, the clown tattoo onto it. For a second, you're like, oh my God, that's horrific. But then you find out, oh, he killed Huntress's family. Um, You know, these are just part of the beautiful display and array of terrible men who had it coming to them. Um, And, um, but yeah, like what what, what do folks think about Black Mask and Victor's ass in the movie? Uh, For me, I thought that they were both very scary. There were a lot of parts of their... uh, just their kind of general acting, I guess, that was pretty unsettling on top of (laughs) all of the things that would normally be unsettling about those two characters. And their kind of uh, weird relationship with each other honestly kind of made sense to me in a weird way. Um, And also, I... I don't know. I feel like even if, I mean, Harley Quinn is also kind of a villain too. So (laughs) for, um, I mean, and I would consider her Mm -hmm. to be, you know, it's like queer people can't all be heroes either. It's just the fact that we've seen so, so, so many villains. That's like the problem. Right. But for me, this was like, I don't know. Yeah. It was the same kind of, I didn't really have any issues with it just based on the fact that I was like, you know, they're going to, they're going to end this movie <laughs> probably blown into little pieces. And that was exactly what happened to, I believe, at least one of them. So, yes. And how? Well, I mean, Zaz, like the, the, the platinum blonde, like Evan Ross cats look like that's definitely not a heterosexual thing. That's right. We can, we can all agree on that. I was like, for a second, I was like, Oh, does he act? Is that who that is? No, it's not. But, um, <laughs> and like, I was really late to the game and figuring out who that was supposed to be. 
Um, I guess I just didn't focus on his facial scars. And I was like, right. it's so weird because you get this this huge info dump about who he is, like, right before he's done. And I'm like, no, Zaz is like a fourth, he's like a fourth tier Batman villain at best. Because he is just a serial killer who cuts himself every time he kills somebody. It's mm-hmm. it's weird. Who knows? But I was also like, really? We're just going to one and done him? You know? Um, and so that was too bad, cause I was like, especially because the performance was so strong. I thought he he did a way better job than Ewan McGregor did. McGregor was fine, mm-hmm. but Zaz was the real, you know, giving you like a um, camp and a performance and really kind of going for it when I kind of felt like Black Mask was pulled in a couple different directions sometimes. But the big the big thing for me with Black Mask is that it ran into the same problem that I found felt like Hustlers did. Because Hustlers was like the, the stripper movie with um, mm-hmm. uh, Jennifer Lopez and whatnot. Um, the thing with that is they wanted to, they really felt like they had this big slam dunk message about um, the financial crisis and, and the guys that they were going after were the bad, were, you know, working for the, the banks and the other financial services companies that plunged everybody into that mess. But the morality of that movie moved it in different directions, like, oh, but these guys have families too. And you're sort of like, where is that in here? And I felt the same way with Black Mask, because there's a bunch of dialogue that you really have to be paying attention to to understand why he's living in that shitty loft to begin with, right? That he's he's a fail son. Like, this is the whole point. Like, he is right. the, the, like, the succession version of a Batman villain. Um, but I don't feel like they built that up. And it was especially strange to see relative to um, what Harley Quinn breaking glass did with the Joker, where... I guess I don't want to spoil that comment too much if you haven't read it, but they do build it up with this big family that's doing huge things in the city um, because you, you can see his family's company name on the building that Cassandra Kane lives in. You yeah, really got to yeah. kind of Janus squint. Corporation. Mm-hmm. Yeah, to, to, to catch this stuff. And you really have to pay attention to these, I guess, kind of trope delivery texts to pay attention to. And I'm like, no, show us more. <laughs> Give it, like, tie those threads together. So I I think he could have been a much stronger villain if, A, they had really kind of dug into that more, and, B, if the damn mask had melted onto his face like it's supposed to. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, no. Yeah. I think... Oh, man, but that part where he's uh, showing around... Like the African art, that was to yes. me just, I was so scared of him in that moment <laughs> that it was just, uh, that jumped out at me. But it's it's just yeah. in moments, right? There's no like cohesive hole that they're working towards with this guy. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I think that his relationship to ownership is like, um, was amazing. I mean, I, I think that, you know, I, I think that the, that, I actually really agree with everything you said, Emma. I think that the kind of fail son storyline is like really fascinating as kind of a an impetus for this um, deeply misogynistic man to like want to prove himself. But I think that his that they really nailed it with like that rich kid feeling like you own everything, that like rich man <laughs> shit. Um, that 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 kind of energy of like, oh, this person, you know, he feels like he owns Dinah. He feels like he owns you know, like this, these, you know, all these artifacts. Um, and 
the kind of he the way he feels that he owns the loyalty of everyone who works for him he, the way he feels mm-hmm. that he owns everyone who st- steps foot in his club and he can do whatever he wants and that at any point that sense of control is even remotely threatened he just falls apart because he feels so and and i thought that that one scene in the in his club where he forces that woman to dance on the table was genuinely one of the most terrifying. It was awful. It was awful to watch. Yep. I was so scared. And I was scared for Dinah too. And I really appreciate that they didn't make her do something in that moment. Because especially, you know, the power dynamic, especially with her being, you know, kind of the employee, a woman of color to this dangerous, violent, terrifying man, you know the truth of the matter is that you can't always act in those moments and the way that that kind of fear just permeates you. It's, it, it was just, I felt like that was kind of his real, the real moment where I felt him as a villain, the real moment where I was like, okay, I get what this guy is beyond just like, he's a rich asshole, you know? Yeah. And then uh, Zaz just starts like laughing. That yeah. was so whack too. Oh, <laughs> I think one of my big moments of this movie was made by women was the fact that they did not try to make that scene sexy. There was like nothing like there would have some there would have been something totally freaking male gaze about how they were looking at that woman on the table, except they just didn't do it because they understand the actual point is to, to be scary. Well, there, there's another point there, though, where, where Zaz comes out the stronger character even in that scene because, like, when you know he can go either way, he can either de-escalate or escalate the situation because, you know, Black Mask isn't sure what the guy is laughing. Is he laughing at me? And, you know, Zaz is like, yes, yes, he is. Yeah. He's, he's mm. pushing him over there, right? And, it's, and, and that's the thing where if I, like... And who knows, but it, if I had to guess, if there was a movie that inspired those two, it's probably, um, God, I'm, I'm, and now I'm flaking on the name of it. It's a, it's a, it's an, um, oh my God. It's a, a Takashi Miike film, like a really brutal exploitation film. Um, oh. Oh, it's Is the it one where Tadanobu Asano has the, like, the Glasgow smile where he has all those scars. It's all... Yeah, that's Old Boy, right? No, no, Old Boy is a Korean movie. It's Chinook Park. No, this is um, oh. Ichi the Killer. Oh, so, yeah, yeah, Ichi yeah. The Killer. oh my God, yeah. Um, because it's the whole sadism thing, but the whole thing is that his mob boss disappears and he knows that the guy is dead, but he's just like torturing all of these people because he can't deal with the fact that his boss is gone. And he had this really weird, like, BDSM relationship with that boss. So you can see Zaj just waiting to break out into that full role. But you can also see with the scars and the blonde hair that, and and just the flamboyance of everything that I wouldn't put it past them to have been inspired by Ichi yeah. the Killer, which I don't necessarily recommend you watch. Yeah, <laughs> oh my God, Emma, I think you nailed it. I think you freaking nailed it. I don't think anybody's noticed that yet. And I yeah, think you're 100% right. Ah, you heard it here, folks, ladies and gentlemen, on Graphic Policy Radio. Um, although I also think that, like, I haven't heard anybody else talk about the Bugs Bunny thing yet, so I'm going to still pat myself on the back for that moment. I think also, like, is it possible that cocaine is the source of her powers? <laughs> it was, I mean, for a second there. <laughs> yeah, exactly, in that, that one that one room. 
Oh, let's talk about Rosie Perez as Renee Montoya. I was so excited to have Rosie be in something. I love that they were not making her try to like, they like let her look like, I actually don't know how old she is, but they didn't try to make her look like she was 12, you know? Mm-hmm. And I liked how they uh, just seemed to like respect her performance as an actress, but also sort of lampshaded that like, we're going to do this 80s cop hard boiled thing and people are going to know that that's a shtick within the story. Um I, I noticed that the thing with her talking to her ex-girlfriend is that the way it's set up, like if you were watching this movie in America, in English, it's 100% clear that like this is Rosie having a fight with her ex-girlfriend. It says it in the text on the graphic. But I know that they're going to take that out when they show it in some other countries because the, the, it's the stuff that says that this is her ex-girlfriend is all written on the screen in English. <laughs> yeah yeah and, and if you cut those if you cut that one scene you can be forgiven for not knowing that that's the scenario and it's i feel so ambivalent about it because rosie perez as renee montoya it, she has to be in the top five best superhero castings of all time yeah yeah robert downey jr john bernthal um you know those ones like the ones that are like you look like the character you live the character but I mean that's and that's the kind of thing with Harley too. You see on the slot machine that that yeah that that she she had a female romantic partner. But these are blinking you miss it things in an eighty million dollar budget R rated movie. Like it's yeah I, I think it's it's really such a shame that they couldn't push this any further. Um, and I mean I I guess. If, and I don't know if this is true, but if Warner Brothers locked up Poison Ivy and said, no, we don't want to use her here because we might use her for, you know, another full-on Batman movie. But it, it, it's kind of like, this, this is as far as we get. And the to me, the and I mean, this this might be, again, too much like fan baggage or something, but to me, the, re- the biggest heartbreak in this movie was her last scene where she packs up her boxes and quits the force because her boss took credit for her work. And I mean, yeah, it sucks when your boss takes credit for your work, but like they blew away any chance of, of the, the Gotham central story of, of half a life of one of the defining LBGT storylines of the decade. It has to be number two or three for DC behind, you know, Joe Winnick's brother's keeper. Like that was a huge deal. And they're just kind of like, all right, she quits the force. Now she's joining the birds. And I was like, what? So, so no chance of this. Ugh. Shattering. I mean, but of course, like, the pig, the, but, like, this is a movie that basically agrees that the cops are fucking terrible and that everybody calls the cops the pigs the whole time, and there is a sort of pleasure in that. Uh, uh, I, you know, I don't know, because, I mean, uh, I feel ambivalent about it because I didn't feel like there was a substantive critique of police power, but also... Harley goes very far out of her way to shoot police with with a with a beanbag gun, right? And then there's a lot of great like hilarity of cops getting hit in the face by beanbag guns. And I'm sure that mm-hmm. anybody who's been hit in the hit in anywhere in the body by an NYPD beanbag gun was like, yeah, right? You know, I mean, you know, fun, but. It, it was so weird because she goes in there and she's got, and that's a great sequence. I love how they shot oh that. My God. They, they, they cribbed yeah. it entirely from, from Injustice. So shout out to uh, Tom Taylor um, and his team for that one. But 
Um, but she goes through this whole sequence of being very careful not to kill anybody. Then the biker gang busts in and it's like, blam, 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 we're going to murder all these people. Then we're going to get high on coke and go nuts. And it's just sort of, it, it was just weird. It's like, is did they have a Blue Lives Matter consultant on the film that was like, okay, but you got to stop here? <laughs> I mean, it's almost more hilarious and, sh- and shaming to them that like, she's not killing them. She's just like, humiliating them like the entire force humiliated um i mean i i think like with the thing with the police here is it is there isn't a critique of policing in the sense that most of the sin that we see of the police is that they care more about jostling for status and superiority over rosie perez over renee montoya than they do about actually solving crime but like that's that's still something like saying this police force cares more about like looking cool than actually like and like, you know, and claiming women's work as their own than actually, you know, solving a crime or protecting a girl or any of that stuff, you know? Right. I mean, I feel like there's so much of this that just has to be taken as red, right? Like the queerness <laughs> has to be taken as red. I, and, uh, you know, maybe somebody else can watch it and be like, I just really like that they didn't kill any of the cops. Like the Blue Lives Matter crowd maybe like would watch this and be really stoked on it. <laughs> maybe. Oh my God, I hope um, not. It's hard for me to s- understand the other side of thoughts. But um, I would say that, yeah, I don't know. I th- I think that they did a lot in a short amount of space. But then again, like it is an R-rated movie. And uh, yeah, I, th- I think I agree with all of that. I think it's always okay to ask for more from a film so we're asking for more explicit queerness we're asking for more like discussions about why cops are pigs rather than just calling them pigs like I think that's totally valid we could always ask for more um Mm -hmm. but I at least appreciate I I you know like I I feel like I I can appreciate as that they went as far as they went that you're I think that you're totally right that it was totally humiliating that scene and very fun to watch her storm into a police station and like just kind of flex on everyone in there. But yeah, no, could have been more, always could have been more. We'll always want more. Hmm. That's our job. It's true. Mm -hmm. Um, Speaking of more, one of the things that I'm glad they did in a limited way was, you know, this is a movie that in which superpowers are like basically not a thing other than, you know, Harley Quinn's got her uh, Warner Brothers Bugs Bunny up superpower, but otherwise... The only time we see a superpower is Black Canary using her canary cry at the very end and it wipes her out, right? And I liked how the movie was sort of saving the superhuman to be used as an exclamation rather than having this be a story with like lots of superpowers happening all through it. I think it kept the movie special. It made it clear why, you know, why Black Canary isn't just going around acting like a superhero all the time. And like, it made the stakes be really clear. And I loved the image of having Harley be like, all these men are being knocked over, but Harley's being powered forward on the power of her voice. Do you folks have thoughts about the powers? I uh, loved that. And I also loved the fact that, like I said, probably the thing that drew me in through this entire movie was just how the fight scenes are all shot. And I that kept me completely engaged from beginning to end, I think. So, yeah, I thought that that was great. I love, love subtle use of power that then suddenly is like bombastic, right? Because that's how I would think it would be. Um, So, yeah, I loved that. I loved all of the action sequences, even the stuff that's completely improbable where she's, you know, on roller skates behind a car or whatever. 
that is maybe not how that works. Maybe she'd hit a, you know, pothole and would die, but um, she doesn't. And <laughs> I don't know. I thought that all of it was very cartoony and yeah, very fun yeah. to watch. Yeah. Well, if Christian Slater could do it on a skateboard and cleaning the cube. <laughs> and then... he did. He did. <laughs> that is a deep cut. <laughs> I just no, I, I could not think of anything else during that 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 whole part. I was just like, oh my god, it's like this kitchen scene in uh, in in that movie, except mm-hmm. it's it's Harley on roller skates, which was amusing. But I was like, that, and that's kind of why a lot of people argue that movies are too long these days. And I'm just like, no, just go back to Netflix. If you want to watch a movie, watch a movie. If you want to watch right. a Quibi series, watch a Quibi series. Um, is my opinion. Um, mm-hmm. And it's like, even once upon a time in Hollywood, I was like, no, I, I like these extended driving scenes. I like this stuff. I like living this Same. world. So I'm like, <laughs> I, I just wish in this yeah. one that, that we had, there was more of an emotional punch to the roller skates. Um, if, if we had gotten a few more minutes of, of Harley's roller world, or if they had just kind of out of nowhere brought her roller team in, they're like, oh, yeah, we're going to, you know, work before. Like, if you've seen uh, Ralph Breaks the Internet, when the Disney princesses all show up again to, you know, to, to, to cantilever him into uh, the position to save the day or that that silly Final Fantasy cartoon years ago that did, did kind of the same thing. Like, let's, let's you know, if we're going to get this cheese ball, let's really get this cheese ball. But I guess they didn't have the time and the budget for more roller skates, so it's okay. <laughs> I would say at no point in this movie was I bored and at no point in this movie was I looking at the White Watch at all, right? Christ, I didn't even really mention the music cues. I should say I am ridiculously critical of the soundtrack of everything, and I feel like the things that most people choose for almost anything are basic as fuck, etc. This made me so happy. They didn't fucking use Cherry Bomb. They used I Hate Myself for Loving You, and they used it in a way that made perfect sense in the story. They, like, were doing great song selections, and even when they were a little bit, like, obvious, they were obvious in a great way. Mm-hmm. Um, any, any other thoughts on the soundtrack, folks? I really like the soundtrack. I, again, this kind of, there was something about it that did like make me think of Scott Pilgrim. I don't know. Um, it was just kind of mm-hmm. like the really fun fight scenes to like really fun music, I guess. And it was just like, yeah, this is, this is, you know, the energy is there. It's, it's really fantastic. Yeah. I, I also am kind of like critical of, of soundtracks and I, I think this one was, was very, very fun. Um, and I was surprised. <laughs> <clears throat> my brother always tells the story of whenever I was watching Thor Ragnarok and the second that like Led Zeppelin starts playing in that one fight scene, he just like looked over and saw my face like, <laughs> go from like normal to just like a deep frown. And so I would say that anything that's kind of like that feels pandering soundtrack wise also does not work for me uh, to say the very least. And I don't, this was great. I thought that all of the soundtrack worked perfectly, honestly. And uh, yeah, that is pretty rare, I guess. I, I hated the music cues. Um, <laughs> wow. To, to, to me, it was one of the big things. There were so many like stylistic and technical things that they brought forward from Suicide Squad that they kept doing. Mm-hmm. And that to me was one of them. And I was like, mm-hmm. w- like, did nobody learn any of the lessons of Suicide Squad? Because like the editing and pacing and the music cues to me felt like that they were they were different music and whatnot, but it kind of felt like it had the same philosophy. And I was just like, no, no, just give me a real score to this movie. Mm-hmm. And the, the one that killed me that just made me want to crawl under my seat was the the was the um the um, the Pat Benatar cover. 
Oh, I, like, <laughs> okay. But I was like, are they, are they trying to be sarcastic? If they're being sarcastic, they're not giving me sarcastic from this scene. And it's just like, you know, it's the same as the I started a joke and like all of these movie trailers, like the, was it, was it a cover of Bjork in that, that terrible Terminator trailer? It was a great movie, but the, <laughs> right. with the, the hunt or whatever. And it's right, just right. like, uh-huh. what? I don't know. I, yeah, I was just kind of like, oh no, oh no. <laughs> I'm thinking now about like the new mutants preview and how every high school movie has uh, that, the wall by Pink Floyd or whatever. Like, uh, or yeah, whatever part two. And I freaking groaned. It's so embarrassing. It really upsets me. Pretty it should. It's upsetting. <laughs> I, I don't know who needs to know, but there's other Pink Floyd songs. Um, and there's other <laughs> songs about like being forced into enter in a machine. And like, you know, I just, it just kills me. It's um, Yeah. Um, I would understand that we landed very different places on this. I would also say that I'm not super familiar with any of the contemporary stuff on the soundtrack. So like, I'm like, I didn't know that's Megan the Stallion, the the Stallion, you know what I mean? Like, that's just not like. That I was hyped as fuck for. And I loved, and I was like, please just make this the whole thing. I was like, if these (laughs) were more of the music cues. Yeah. I was, I've been super excited for that. The actual like soundtrack album of this movie um is is brilliant all like the doja cat and like normani mm-hmm. and you know megan the stallion like it's just an incredible great curation but they they didn't highlight it enough in the movie i felt like and, and they went to old things and they went to the pat benatar cover and it's like no give me more of this you know mm-hmm. you know like give, give us something like the the meek mill track in uh in creed right I'm assuming that they couldn't, like, afford the Pat Benatar, actual Pat Benatar song, (laughs) and decided that it would be interesting to have it be in a different tone at that moment. That's my guess. But, like, they have very white, you know, and it was very white. Sorry. But, like, they had, they had, I love the way they used, I'm going to love you just a little bit more, baby. Like, it's, like, I don't know. Like, there was lots of stuff that made me very excited as an old person who likes the old things. (laughs) And also hates everything all the time. Like, to have, like, contemporary music in it that didn't make me want to scream and punch people is pretty, like, in a bad way, is, like, pretty noteworthy. Like, I'm going to actually check out some of the hip-hop artists on this. I mean, these particular tracks of theirs, etc. Um, So we're coming up on time. And uh, are there things that we want to make sure to hit before the moment is over? I'd like to talk just a little bit more about Black Canary, I guess. Mm-hmm. Let's talk about Black Canary. Uh, yeah, I don't know. I thought that she was really good in this movie. Again, I kind of just liked the movie. I enjoyed her as just kind of, I mean, it's it doesn't get very deep into her character, obviously. But it is really nice just to kind of see Dinah be morally torn, kind of like in that situation that we saw her be in so many times in Birds of Prey, even though, I mean, it's different, but it's morally the same, I guess. Um, Just kind of seeing Dinah be torn (laughs) and having to Mm -hmm. make hard decisions, I think, is one of my favorite dynamics of Birds of Prey in the comics. So I loved that. And I thought that the actor was so good. I enjoyed her a lot. I loved her a lot too. I felt like I really appreciated her. I really appreciated the way that she was placed in those positions, especially now since now she's, you know, um, this is this this character is being played by a woman of color and the way that specifically mm-hmm. you kind of find yourself in these situations in which you're not sure how to because the other person has 
more power of you in, in this sense, like a physical and a financial one and just kind of all over and the way that you can find yourself in positions where you want to do good, but like the danger is to you and you, you don't know how to navigate that. I felt like that was captured really well, even though she could have, you know, like we know she has superpowers. We know she could have blasted his ass across the room, but like, you know, that's just not how that always works. Even if you are the more powerful mm-hmm. person, you can feel small. And I think that that, that the performance really resonated with me for that reason that I was like, I really understand this position that she's in. And I'm so glad that she, you know, kicks ass and gets out of it at the end in the way that she does. And, you know, yeah. 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 I mean, I, I feel like she, you can really see the performance of like her as someone who like, wants to be a good person, but mostly wants to survive. And this tension between, and like seeing how her mom was like left out on a fucking limb to like die and be killed for, for sticking her neck out. Like the performance is really great. Yeah. And her singing was good. Oh yeah. I, th- I thought that, that, that like one little part where, you know, the glass breaks when she hits the high note, I was like, oh, fun, you know? But driving a Jaguar instead of a motorcycle. Really? <laughs> okay, true. Really? That's true. That's true. That's true. They That's what, Harley yeah. had to steal it. That was the only way to make it right. Now she's going to have to get a motorcycle. <laughs> yeah, fair enough. I mean, I, I get that it was integral to the plot because she had to be Black Mask's driver. But, like, maybe he just likes hanging on back on a motorcycle. <laughs> maybe he does. Maybe that's his thing. That's a better visual for me, but... Probably a lot more uncomfortable for Dinah, unfortunately. It's probably more uncomfortable for Zaz, who's definitely going to try to get on that bike. Oh, God, you're right. <laughs> see, see, now that is what... No, and that's where you get the little... The sidecar. <laughs> Zaz has his own little sidecar. Cam salt. Hell yeah. See? I want that see? movie. See? Cam salt. <laughs> sidecar. This is nice. highly disturbing and amazing at the same time. <laughs> I mean, my dad drove a Jaguar. Like, my dad bought a vintage Jaguar when I was a kid, and it was, like, the worst car. <laughs> and that's all I could think about the whole movie is just, like, do you know how par- how hard parking is going to be for that fucking Jaguar? Like, <laughs> Well, that's that's how you know it's not actually in New York. Yeah, like, that's true. They have New parking. Nice car. Got them. Like, not even just that, but, like, you, n- nobody has a nice car in New York. It's going to get, like, destroyed mm-hmm. in, like, three minutes. Yeah. Like, why, why would you do that? Yeah. That's ridiculous. Um, that's very alien to me. Um, well, I want to add, to add, end on really one really quick note, because, like, one of the things that I was really excited about this movie, right, was, like, how Marco made sure that women were actually doing all the cool shit behind the camera, not just in front of it. So mm-hmm. I want to end with asking folks to do a quick shout-out to a mm-hmm. recent movie made by a woman that might not be a major studio superhero release that you want to make sure folks know to see, whether it's in the studio, whether it's out in the in the theaters or not. Right now, I am always telling everybody to go watch The Love Witch, which is like the most perfect feminist B-movie exploitation, completely set in a fully realized, gorgeous 1968 uh, California town, uh, but shot a couple of years ago, available for rental. Um, and it is like feminist and campy and stunning. And it's of course about witches and Satanism and killing men. And it has, the, the, the director is the writer and the, she does all the art direction and she wrote the songs. It's like the most like singular vision for a piece of art you could possibly imagine. And everything about it is 
just gloriously over the top and brilliant. Like to have something so feminist and so uh, campy and so smart and so aesthetically polished in one thing. It's just like nothing, nothing like this half happens. I would, I would love to shout out um, The Farewell. Uh, I think mm-hmm. that that was a movie that was agonizingly snubbed this award season. And I was very disappointed by that. But I think that it is an incredible movie just absolutely beautiful. Um, the performances were all excellent. I haven't cried that much at a movie since, like, the first time I watched Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind when I was 14 or something. Like, it was just it absolutely... It was, just, it was just amazing. I think that also... It, I've never seen a film that so accurately captured the kind of Generation 1.5 experience of mm. not really fitting into either culture, when, which is what happens when you come to America um, as like a as a really young child. And I think that it was also just absolutely incredible to, I think that it was such a quintessentially immigrant American, especially story that did not get placed, did not get seen that way because we are... Um, we don't view stories that aren't in English as American stories, even if they are. Um, yeah, so I that think was that, disgusting how it was labeled as a foreign movie when in, it's not. Yeah, it's it absolutely not. isn't. It's. I think that this was. I think that it's like a must see for for everyone. Just kind of like a basic touchstone of empathy, and I think that it especially kind of touched beautifully on the way that women. In, in families are meant to kind of carry emotional weight and their roles and guilt. And it was just, it was just, everything about it was exceptional. I, I haven't seen a movie that has been quite so impactful to me in a very long time. So The Farewell, 100%. Emma? Um, I'm going to go with Zero Dark Thirty. No. <laughs> I'm, I'm sorry. sorry. No. That was... <laughs> I stopped breathing for a whole moment. Yeah, I was like, no, I'm leaving right now. <laughs> I, will, I will not be choosing Zero Dark Thirty is my choice. Um... I'm I'm just gonna I'm just gonna keep riding the train that I've been riding for the last ten months and just say book smart, book smart, so and good. again, Very book good. smart. Um, especially for Billy Lord, who is just freaking amazing. Um, and like Olivia Wilde just nailed it. Um and it's just there there's like little things that you just you don't typically see, um, even in like LBGT inclusive movies, like the whole idea of just like um, you know, a straight girl and her... Well, actually, we don't know what her orientation is. Sorry, we, we don't know. I shouldn't say that. I shouldn't say that. Right. She could be bi. We don't actually know. But, like, one girl having a crush on a guy and one girl having a crush on a girl and, like, their crushes hook up at the party together and you're like, whoa, this has literally never happened in a Hollywood teen movie ever. So that's cool. Um, but just as a quick shout-out, because I can't fully endorse because I haven't seen it yet, but Jen and Sylvia Soska, the local Vancouver icons, the twin <laughs> sister horror movie directors, have just done a remake of David Cronenberg's Rabbit. And it's what? on like yeah. it's on like VOD and stuff in the US, but it is in theaters in Canada now. I'm going to Canada okay. very soon, and I'm very glad you said that because now I know what I'm looking up. Thank you. Yes. That's amazing. Um I I I'm so excited. I'm going to watch that online. 
And, and Sarah, what what are you going to tell us to see? Um, I'm just going to say uh, Tigers Are Not Afraid by Issa Lopez, which was basically just a it's really sad. It's very Pan's Labyrinth, I guess, as far as just being kind of a tragic yet fanciful childhood story. Um, and it's uh, beautiful and really good. I I watched tons and tons and tons of movies, but this, this was one that stayed with me for a long time. Beautiful. Well, thank you all for listening. Um, folks, Graphic Policy Radio is on every platform you can think of for podcasts. I would love to get people's reviews and you can help us spread the word about the show. I'm on Twitter a little bit too much and you can give me feedback there. E-L-A-N-A underscore Brooklyn. That's Ilana underscore Brooklyn. And as we like to say on the show, keep it geeky.